Awesome. You know, just being around Roberta and Steve, Roberta makes me want to be six again. She's just, she's like, this is the sweetest, softest couple. And if there was ever a couple that was handpicked and designed specifically by God to work with six-year-olds, it's this precious couple. And so they are doing a knockdown, amazing job. We actually baptized Steve just a few years ago. That's what we want to see at this church. We want to see people getting baptized, becoming disciples, starting to serve. And that is exactly what we're talking about today. Today, we hit session number two of a seven-part series entitled, Take Up Your Cross, Taproot Church's Membership Philosophy. As I said last week, this is really the most important series of teachings that we're going to have in 2014. These seven series uh, are going to serve as our primary foundation of membership. Now, I mentioned last week, and I'm working feverishly to make sure that this gets out to you guys, hopefully by this fall. There's going to be a follow-up little handbook with much more resourcing, footnotes, the whole nine that will become our membership handbook after this. But my prayer is that those who are attending currently as members and those of you that are considering membership at this church, you would use this series and then this summer to go through interview processes, sign covenants, be involved. If you missed any of these sessions, they are all going to be online. Preferably, though, you're here on Sunday mornings because we do Q&A here on Sunday mornings. It's the final thing I want to say before we get into this is we're not doing communion here on Sunday mornings over these next seven weeks. Primarily because the pastor hat has been taken off and the, the organization leader hat has been put on. And these sessions are much more teaching. So if you're here visiting, what we normally do is we're going verse by verse right now through the gospel of Mark. We read the scriptures. We preach and herald Jesus as the answer to everyone for everything at every place at all times. We pray, we take communion. These sessions are much more teaching in style. And so take notes, know that afterwards we are going to have Q&A. And so today's session is on the Bible. And so if you have questions about the Bible, challenges about the Bible, issues of interpreting the Bible, why do we have so many translations of the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? These and many more questions we hope to answer in this session, in the handbook, in the Q&A. Everybody on track? We're on the train. We're ready to roll? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this church. And today as we hit session two, the Bible, the Bible, what an amazing book. Not a book written of men, but of God by men. Your word in this world specific, authoritative, inerrant. And it reveals to us your goodness and your grace and your will. For the disciple who follows Jesus, the Bible is the preeminent source of authority, the ultimate guide to reality. And Lord, in a church culture that is being renovated, a Christian culture that is once again facing greater and greater opposition, and that opposition will only increase. In a world, Lord, where your word is thought of as antiquated, archaic, in some instances dangerous, the disciple holds his Bible not only in his hand, but in his heart. 
May we be a people of the book, a people of prayer, a people of dependence. The passages that we find on the pages of the Bible are promises to us from you. And so counsel your people this day, comfort them, give to them the assurance that your word is infallible. It will not fail. And by faith, Father, as we follow you and worship you in the opening of your word, in the coming weeks and months of the existence of this church, may we herald truth for the glory of your name until you come. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen, buddy. Amen. The Disciples' Bible. We, as Christians, do not serve a God that is based on some nebulous notion of energy and ethereal spirit, some distant nirvana, some loss of self to discover the ultimate energy that exists in all of the universe. The God who we serve and love and worship is not merely thought of in abstract metaphysical ways. The core of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a real, tangible relationship. As much as we have a relationship with our wives and our husbands, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, interaction, communication, intentional development, so too our relationship with God is real, tangible. Communication and relationship is what makes up our walk with God. And so all relationships are built by this personal, interactive, responsive communication. And the first and foremost fact about the God of the Bible and the disciple who worships that God is that he is personal. He is emotional. He has a will. He has desires. And he communicates them not in necessarily foggy, cloudy, ethereal, mysterious, untangible ways, but in specific, clear, I heard what he said, I know what he wants me to do ways. And his word is the way that we build a relationship with him and walk as disciples. And so the two or three or four driving questions of this second session of our membership series is how does God communicate with us? Last week, we talked about being a culture making people taproot church exists to bring renewal to all things by making disciples that make disciples of Jesus. That renewal comes one soul at a time. If God has commissioned us 
to walk with him, learn of him, love him, be his disciples, make disciples. How does he communicate with us? How does he speak to us? How does he reveal what his will is? How does he show us his desires and his emotions and his heart? How is this tangible relationship that is built by this intentional, interactive, responsive communication. How does that happen? And my argument is going to be that that happens through the Bible. So, beginning to answer this question this morning, the idea of revelation, revelation, how God communicates with his people, how God speaks to his people, how we come to know who he is. Theologians have discussed this topic of God's revelation, how God speaks to us under two main categories, general revelation and special revelation. In some circles, it's also known as or called natural theology and revealed theology. For our time together this morning, we will use the terminology of general revelation. God speaks to all of humanity generally, and there is special revelation. We'll only spend a moment here this morning on general revelation and the bulk of our time on special revelation. These two ways that God speaks to and builds relationship with humanity. Let's talk about general revelation. General revelation is the teaching... That God speaks through creation and our consciences. I can remember backpacking the central sawtooths of central Idaho with my dad. I started backpacking when I was about seven. And waking up at two or three in the morning, 11,000 feet in elevation in the middle of literally nowhere. Central Idaho is the middle of nowhere. Looking up. Into the expanse of the skies, there's not another human being within a 50-mile radius. And all of a sudden having this horrific sense that I was this infinitesimal little speck on an infinitesimally small little speck of dust hurtling through infinite space with this expanse of burning stars above my head. And I was this tiny little thing. And all of a sudden, deep down in my core, this sense of... Whoa, there is something out there bigger than me. We've all had that moment where the sunrise spoke. And we went, wow, something painted that. You've come across and over the crest of the summit as you're driving through the mountains. And all of a sudden, the landscape opens and you find yourself going, oh. Something beautiful, bigger, wiser, better made what I'm looking at. Those experiences are what theologians in the Bible calls general revelation via creation. God speaks to all of us through what he has created. The Bible alludes to this and speaks clearly about it in certain instances. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read briefly from them. Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. Psalm 19 
verses 1 through 6 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist says here in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19 that sunrises and sunsets, mountain landscapes, the expanse of burning stars in the heavenlies all speak generally to all of humanity about the existence of God and his power. Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 1 saying in verse 16 or verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says all men are suppressing the truth, but God is speaking to them about that. Verse 19 says, For what can be known or spoken about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul makes very clear that all humanity is accountable to God No human being on this planet could ever say, I didn't know there was a God because creation speaks of God's existence. The classic illustration being when one stands staring at a painting, the painting speaks to a few different things. Number one, the point the painting says there's a painter that exists. This is the cosmological argument for the existence of the painter. There's a painting, something painted it, A painter painted it. This is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Number two, though, as you look at the painting, dependent upon the ordering of the paint, how the strokes were made, the skill, the the beauty of the painting, the painting speaks of the ability and the wisdom and the skill of the painter himself. This is what we call the teleological argument for God, the order of creation. We may go an hour and a half today. I'm going to share with you guys some amazing stuff. Astronomically? (laughs) Help me out, somebody. Astronomy. (laughs) Astronomically. I'm not the speaker. God is. So you guys just need to listen to him and deal with my mumbles and my bumbles. Astronomy teaches, I can't get it. Astronomy teaches this. Listen, look this up in your science books. No doubt about it. The order of the universe is so precisionly tuned. It's so fine tuned that the earth, if it was out another hundred meters from where it's at in accordance with its orbit around the sun, we'd be too cold to have life. Another hundred kilometers closer to the sun, we'd be too hot to have life. We're talking the knife's edge. This runs its course in biology, in astronomy, in all of the hard sciences. What the scientists say is one degree off this way, one degree off that way, no life. This is what we call the painter using great skill and precision to present to the world. Here I am. I'm wise. I'm big. I do it right. I exist and you're accountable to me teleological 
argument for God, the argument from order. The third thing, though, that the painter may reveal about himself in his painting is his emotions. What in the world does Mona Lisa evoke? What was he saying with that smirk slash sly smile on her face? What was the painter getting at? The painting speaks of the painter. The painting draws us in and it reveals in abstract ways his emotions, his desires, his longings. Now, the second aspect of general revelation is our consciences. And this one is very important. Creation speaks of God and creation speaks, God speaks through creation. But the second way that God speaks generally to all of humanity about his existence and his will is through our conscience. Our conscience is that inward sense of right and wrong. We are all born with an inward sense of justice. We all have Jiminy Cricket, for you older folks in here that remember... Disney, little G-mini cricket who's sitting there and he's our conscience and he's saying, no, don't. We all have a little angel and a little devil on this shoulder saying, do it, do it. No, don't do it. Don't do it. That is our conscience. Our conscience generally reveals God and generally speaks to us about his existence and his will. Again, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter two, if you have your Bibles open there, beginning in verse 12, Paul is talking about humanity that doesn't have a Bible. We all have that question. Where do people go that don't have the Bible? What about people that never heard the gospel? Just as a little parenthesis here, if you're the one asking that question, you're being sent to those people. (laughs) Okay. I'm serious. I'm so tired of people coming up saying, I can't be a Christian because there's people out there that never heard of the Bible and never heard of the gospel. That's because you need to get saved and go. (laughs) Romans chapter two, though, Paul is talking about those people who never have had the Bible, who have never had God's special revelation. And in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, everybody's going to be judged by this general law. And he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, that's the pygmies in... Borneo, who have never had the Bible, who do not have the law by nature, by conscience, by this inherent sense of right and wrong, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." Paul says that God is generally speaking to humanity in their hearts by this pervasive, non-negotiable sense of justice, of right and wrong that we are all born with. Where did that sense of justice and right and wrong come from? Why is it that generally, anthropologically, all through humanity, all through history, there has been a recognized, unwritten code of conduct that looks virtually synonymous across the board? Where did that come from? And I will tell you, because I have tried to answer that question The naturalistic psychologies and sociologies and anthropologies that that propose that morality is just a social structure that evolved as we needed to protect one another in our herd mentality. 
does not sufficiently answer this pervasive sense of right and wrong. There has to be an absolute moral lawgiver for us to adhere to any sort of standard of righteousness or right and wrong and justice. It's interesting to me that human beings are the only species that really have this degree and depth of moral awareness. Now, I realize we live in Seattle. I'm about to step on some toes here. There are a rising number of studies coming out of Stanford and various areas of preeminent, what we would call progressive psychology, where they are studying dog ethics, dolphin morality, looking at the the ethics and the morality and the sense of right and wrong that dogs and various animals of intelligence have. And the consensus at this point across the board is that dogs are amoral. Now, we all find ourselves... (laughs) Somebody just passed out and fell on the floor, writhing in agony. The consensus in most of these studies, and I can point you to them, iTunes U is amazing for finding out needless facts about pointless stuff. The consensus, though, is that because we are moral beings, the dog Pavlovian... Pavlovian response, we are, we are basically putting onto that dog, when that dog is responding by behavior and all that dog wants is more food or it's belly rubbed or doesn't want to be punished, that's not a moral response that that dog is experiencing. We put onto that dog our moral senses of right and wrong and their little face just reflects back to us what we're experiencing in ourselves. This is the consensus. You can still love Fido, but really all he wants is his food. I'm just telling you. We are the ones that, dis- we, we look at the world and we have this sense of right and wrong. We're asking, my dog Joe could care less. Why? Why only human beings? Why does the Bible say we are the image bearers of God? Where did that come from? Now, I want to address this very clearly. You and I live in a culture, and this is where Taproot needs to renew this as truth speakers. We live in a culture where right and wrong is supposed to be subjective and individual. What's right for you is right for you, and what's wrong for you is wrong for you, but don't tell me that your wrong is going to be my wrong, and because really truth is not all authoritative. Really truth is up to the individual. We don't have the right to tell anybody else that what they're doing is wrong or right. If they believe that that's right for them, then it is. And let me prove that none of us live consistently that way at all, if you think that way. Hitler. I don't think any one of us in this room went, he was right. Why? If we, held, if we hold to our standards of current cultural morality and justice, Hitler believed that what was right for him was to decimate an entire population of people. If we live a purely consistent naturalistic worldview, Hitler was simply survival of the fittest. And what he did was, in our standard of morality, right. And the gut-level revulsion that we all experience with that statement right there proves that you do not live consistently There is something outside of you that says what Hitler did was wrong and we all know it and none of us can say his right was right and we can't tell him that he was wrong. I'm using an extreme example. This carries itself through in every question of morality, in every code of conduct. We must have an outside source of 
authority that says that's right living, that's wrong living. We don't get to decide that subjectively and all humanity experiences that. And what Paul says here in Romans chapter one, coming back to this is that we suppress that humanity says, I know God says this is wrong. I'm going to, I don't want to hear that. Jiminy cricket, knock him down. Shoulders on angels on the shoulders. Don't listen to them. I'm going to suppress that truth, that conscience speaking, and I'm going to do what I want to do. But that does not change the fact that God still speaks generally to humanity through our consciences. This is actually one of the reasons I'm a Christian. About once every six months or so, I have to go through a process of, okay, there is a God. If there is a God, that God has to be personal. And the, the argument that keeps me believing is that all humanity has this sense of moral awareness, the moral argument for God. He speaks generally in this way. That inward compass is God speaking. So general revelation, this is all the time that we can spend on it. I would love to continue to unpack the philosophy of general revelation, all the things that we can learn. But suffice it to say, what God reveals, what God speaks to all of humanity through creation and through conscience, through sunrises and that sense of guilt are a few things. He speaks about his power. He speaks about his beauty. He speaks about his morality. He speaks about his holiness. He speaks about a number of things, but we cannot know. We cannot have a deep growing, vibrant, personal relationship based on conscience and creation alone. We don't know God's name. We don't know the details of his will. We don't know his attributes. We don't know his people. We don't know his desires. We We know generally, and we know enough, all of humanity has been spoken to clearly enough by God through creation and conscience that they are accountable to him. Once you reach that point, you start becoming desperate. What does he want? I know he's there. What does he want? That brings us this morning to the Bible. Special revelation. God using his words to speak to humanity. Now, This is about to get textbook for some of the nerds in here. You're going to love this session for some of the rest of you. You're just going to want to shut down. Please tough this one out with me. (laughs) Stick with this because this is one of the most important topics of current cultural challenge that we face. The Bible as God's word to us. How important is it? It gives to us this ability To speak with God. Let me say this about the Bible as we get going here on this second section. The Bible is by far, it is the most unique and important book of all of creation. The Bible is the determining interpreter of reality for the Christian. In other words, we don't determine who God is by the feelings we get in our tummy, by the experiences we have around us. God reveals who he is and determines who he is and relays reality to us through the Bible. The Bible is the final guidance on authority. The Bible defines everything for us, not our feelings. And I want to say this clearly, and I want to say this pastorally, and I want to say this pleading for your hearts and your souls in this anemic, dying culture that we live in. If you are not in your Bible, knowing your Bible, reading your Bible, your relationship with God is anemic or non-existent. 
We, as American Christians, are starved. If God is building a relationship with us via intentional communication, and that communication comes through the Bible, and our Bible is never open, and our Bible is never read, and we're not listening to the Bible, then we are not in a relationship with that God. Pray through membership at Taproot Church because this is that standard. And this is one of those moments where where we find ourselves saying, oh my goodness, he's right. I haven't been reading my Bible. It's been weeks, months. I don't have time. I haven't set aside time. I haven't been in I haven't been involved and and then all of a sudden there's this guilt that comes into our lives rather than that sense of a father coming to a son saying, I miss you so much. Come talk to me. Rather than a husband who's been estranged from his wife saying, I want to communicate again. It's a love letter to us. It's his leadership in our lives. It's the way that he speaks to us. And so the Bible is paramount. The Bible is what drives us and decides for us the direction we take as disciples. And if you are not reading your Bible, you don't have direction. You don't have that intentional relationship with him. So cry out, Lord, give me desire. Help me to prioritize in my discipleship time in the Bible. Time in your word with me. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, this was a group of men in the early 70s that compiled a a statement on inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures. In their opening statement of the Chicago Statement, they say, the authority of scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Now listen. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our master. We talked last week about disciples and the crowds. One of the differentiating marks of a disciple from someone who was just in the crowd, according to Mark, was that the disciples listened to and knew the words of Jesus while the crowds knew about Jesus. A differentiating mark that draws somebody from the crowd into following Jesus as a disciple is this insatiable, though ebbing and flowing, desire to hear from him and know his words. And we hear from him and know his words in the Bible. I think I have kicked that horse plenty. What is the Bible? Let's get into some more technical work here. What exactly is the Bible? The Bible is actually a library of books. Please don't be embarrassed. If you're brand new, baby Christian, brand new to the Bible, I was in shock and awe. I opened up the Bible and I began reading it and I expected it was a big, thick, black book 
that started with, no, you won't ever have fun, and ended with, you're going to go to hell. That's what I thought that the Bible was. And all the pages in between were, you're terrible, right? That was it. When I got saved and I opened up the Bible, and I start reading, like, Matthew, and then I, I go, I want to keep going through the progression, right? So I go to Mark. I'm like, who's Mark? Oh, wait. He's writing about Jesus again. And he's saying, oh, there's two guys that wrote about Jesus? That's cool. And then I go to Luke. Whew. There was three guys that wrote about Jesus. And then I get to John. I'm like, whoa, there's four guys that wrote about Jesus. And I can remember going to the college group. I'm like five weeks old. And Lord, did you guys know that there were four guys that wrote about Jesus? (laughs) Because the Bible is actually a library. It's a library of books. 66 books to be specific. Listen to this. Written by over 40 different authors. The Bible has... Within it, three different dead language groups represented, ancient Hebrew, Koine Greek, and some form of Aramaic. Multiple cultures, and the Bible and its books actually span multiple cultures over hundreds of years. And to top it all off, it's a library not of specifically same written books, but different genres. Think of it of of a bookshelf that has magazines on it and technical books on it and devotional books on it and, and romance books on it, different genres. And so the Bible is a compilation. It's a library of all of these different books that has come together over hundreds of years. And there's two primary things here that I want us to believe and understand about the Bible itself in all of its expansive diversity is number one, the Bible is a historical record in this culture as a member of Taproot Church. This is something that will die for the Bible is actually a legitimate historical record. Again, the Chicago statement of Biblical inerrancy helps us to fight against the cultural mantra that the Bible is archaic. It's filled with myths. It's mistranslated. We're going to talk about all those things hopefully here in the next 20 minutes. But the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy on the historical validity of the Bible says, Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history... And about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. The caveat, the important thing to understand about this statement that the Bible is a historical record is this. In some instances, the Bible describes literal historical events using beautiful poetic language rather than scientific language. The Bible describes accurately what happened in Genesis, that God created everything. But the Bible can and does use language in metaphor and poem to describe allegorical events. Now, I I shouldn't even use Genesis because there is great science out there for both sides of the coin saying that the earth is old, that the earth is young. I don't take a position on that at this point. But in other instances, the Bible is describing literal events using poetic language. And so some would say, you see, the Bible's not true. It's not really a historical record when in actuality it is describing history. Let me give you an example of this very briefly. Uh, The sun was out a couple days ago, correct? I could describe it this way. Two days ago, the earth rotated on its axis. And as it rotated on the axis, the 
horizon dropped and the view of the sun, which is static, came into view. And the heat and the neurons and the protons from that sun began to beat against the atmosphere of the earth, thus warming it. And the temperature came up to a very comfortable place, making everybody happy. That's one way of describing a historical event from two days ago, correct? Here's another one. Two days ago, warmth spilled through the clouds and bathed the valley in between the mountains. Washing over the souls of Seattleites, putting smiles on their faces, skipping in their steps all along the sidewalks. I just described a historical event that literally happened poetically. The Bible does this all the time. The Bible is a historical event and it is a legitimate record of a specific people group in a specific geography with literal events that took place from Genesis to Revelation. All of these characters existed. We will meet them in eternity. Jesus lived and breathed and walked on this earth. I can tell you that as a Christian, one of the most Amazing experiences for me. I had opportunity to go to Israel. I was backpacking with a college group over there through the deserts of the Dead Sea regions all around Jerusalem, Palestine, all of that area. And it is awe-inspiring. It's a little bit overwhelming, to tell you the truth, to stand in places where these events happen. And you're on the ground, though there's layers of ground over where it actually happened now. And you're standing in the digs and you're looking at these places where Jesus Christ himself very possibly stood. And our tour guide would take us from one site to another site using the Bible as his guide to say, oh, and here's how the archaeologists discovered this. And that's an important point. It's not only a layman's experience going to Jerusalem, seeing the geographical locale of where the Bible took place in the Holy Lands, but scholars and archaeologists no longer fight against the Bible as a historical document. And the scholarship out there is pervasive now. Werner Keller The Bible is History. It's a really interesting book. He says, these breathtaking discoveries, talking about how, especially up through the 30s and 40s, the Bible had been written off as a non-historical document. And then archaeologists began doing all these digs in the Middle East. And they would find exactly what the Bible had been talking about. They would find cities. They would, anthropologists would begin defining the people groups, Canaanites, Hittites, based on what they discovered archaeologically and anthropologically. And they go to the Bible and they'd be like, "Uh uh-oh. (laughs) This is true. Like, they really existed. This really did happen. So Werner Werner Cornell Keller says, These breathtaking discoveries whose significance it is impossible to grasp all at once make it necessary for us to revise our views about the Bible. Many events which previously passed for pious tales must now be judged to be historical. In the culture that we live in as members of this church, you need to know that Jesus Christ literally 2,000 years ago walked on this planet made the statements that he made, literally died, literally resurrected from the dead. That is a historical event. Now, the second aspect of the Bible and its special revelation is that it is not only a historical document, but it is an inspired word. I'm using technical language here. Inspired does not necessarily mean it's soul moving and beautiful. Inspiration of scripture is a technical theological term that literally means, taken from 2 Timothy, God breathed. That the words you have in that book on your lap were breathed out by God. As I breathe in air into my lungs, 
and then I compress my vocal cords and create sound waves. The sound waves of God's word come through this book. It is inspired. And because it is God's word, it is also inerrant. That means because God is perfect, God's Bible, his word to us is perfect. And that means it is authoritative. That means it holds authority over us and it holds authority over the world. The world around us can say as much as they would like. The Bible is mistranslated. The Bible is full of myths. The Bible is archaic. The Bible is antiquated. The Bible is dangerous. And they will be judged by the authority of God's words. It is inerrant. It is inspired. And it is his specific way of communicating. Wayne Grudem on Bible authority and his New Testament systematic theology says the authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Maybe in our Q&A time we'll tackle hermeneutics and how to interpret the Bible. The point being men will interpret the Bible wrong. We are fallen. But the Bible is not wrong. Men will misuse and misapply the Bible, but the Bible itself is not in error or at fault. Men are. It's a very complex thing to think through. The doctrine of inspiration, a couple quick things on this. The doctrine of inspiration teaches that the Bible was written 100% by God and 100% by men. This is another unique aspect of Christianity that you won't find in any other world religion. Track with me here. When we say the Bible was written by God, that does not mean that Moses and Isaiah and the Apostle Paul and Mark all of a sudden went into a trance and their hand rose up and the quill went into the ink and they just suddenly began writing because they couldn't stop themselves. God has taken over. God is speaking. And so is that telephone. (laughs) Instead, what God did is he used their personalities. He used the culture. He, he spoke through their present place. And so rather than mechanically dictating, taking over the, the personality and usurping the cultural and the historical context, God spoke through those means. And the miracle of inspiration is that he did it perfectly. Without error. What God wanted to say through the apostle Peter and through the church planter Paul and through the, through the pastor John, he said specifically, inerrantly, and perfectly in their historical contexts, using their personalities, their words, their, their colloquialisms, all of the things that that culture would hold near and dear and understand, he used that perfectly to speak to all of humanity and his word. The doctrine of inspiration also needs to be understood that we don't say the Bible is inspired because it makes us feel funny when we read it. The Mormons would actually teach that when you read the Book of Mormon, you should pray for a burning in the bosom of your heart, and you'll know that it's God. Or you'll know that you shouldn't have eaten that burrito, one or the other, right? We don't determine reality by what we subjectively feel. The Bible determines reality. And here's what the Bible says about itself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy, no words of Scripture, ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. 
Peter says, the Bible says about itself, look, these writings aren't just the words of men, but they were moved by the Spirit of God. This is what the Bible says about itself. If you're going to reject inspiration, you're going to reject it based on, I do not believe that this book saying about itself is true. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what the Bible says about itself. All scripture is inspired. That's that technical word, God breathed by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So the Bible is inspired. It is a historical document. It is God's word to us. We can talk more about that in Q&A, and hopefully the handbook will have a lot more resourcing on this. So, with that said, special revelation, we want to ask one more question. And this is the, the ending of this section and this session for today. How did the Bible come to be? How do we know and how can we trust that what we have on our laps... From Genesis to Revelation, how did it come about? How, how did 40 different authors spanning multiple continents and cultures and languages, how did all those books get put together and they all say the same thing and there's no contradictions and they're all inspired and inerrant? How did that happen? How can we trust that? We're going to answer that in two ways, looking at what's called the canon of Scripture and the transmission of Scripture this morning. 15 more minutes of very technical thinking here. But let me express why this is important. Uh, I'll give you a recent example. Like two weeks ago, right, right before Easter, they found it. They found it. The gospel of Judas. And it said that Jesus was married. And the, the, the Harvard professor that was dating this particular fragment that they found discovered that it was 2nd century A.D. We live in a culture like any other culture in the history of the Bible that has done whatever it can to refute and to ignore, to make little of its words. The Da Vinci Code, the movie and the novel was dumb. <laughs> Historically, literarily, scholarly, archaeologically, anthropologically, sociologically, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code are false. And Dan Brown would say, this is a fiction book. And 90% of the people who aren't here on Sunday morning, when you bring up the topic of the Bible, are going to say, did you read the Da Vinci Code? Did you know that Jesus was married? And I watched a PBS special the other night. They found the gospel of Judas. And it's old. <laughs> and I don't really know why that affects the way I read the Bible, but it does. And I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> we live in a culture that does whatever it can to deny the validity of the book that we read as God's word. And we need to understand how the Bible came about and how it is unique and non-contradictory. And we're going to do that in two ways this morning. How did the Bible come to be? Why is Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code dumb? Nothing against him. But number one, number one, canon. 
Canon is a word that essentially, not C-A-N-N-O-N, boom, blow stuff up, Canon, but Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Canon is, an, is a theological word that means standard or measurement. Standard or measurement. And so the canon of Scripture are the specific books that met a certain standard or measurement and were included and recognized by the people of God as God's word, as God's word. Now, I'm using very key words here. The culture around us would say, you can't trust your Bible because a group of men in the third century lit up some candles, sat around a table, flipped coins, and decided which books to be in there. And the books that they didn't like, especially the ones that liberated women, they got rid of. And they did this in about an hour-long session. You can look at them and you can say, that's dumb. That's not true. That's not even close to how the Bible came to be. The Bible and the process of canon literally took hundreds of years. It was a slow rising to the surface of certain books. And what we need to understand is that no man said, I choose that book and I deny that book, but rather the church itself over about three centuries began to recognize God's word is God's word, right? They began to recognize, wow, these books, we recognize them. They have this standard. They have this consistency. They have this teaching. They were written by this person. They're self-authenticating in this way, this standard. We recognize that this is God's word, and we recognize that that other book, Gospel of Thomas, which, by the way, all those other, all those other fragments didn't come about until about the 4th or 5th century. All of those other books, we don't recognize those. They don't have this same inherent standard, okay? F.F. Bruce says this in this great quote. He says, One thing that must be emphatically stated, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical um, church councils, to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa, uh, Hippo Regius in 393 and Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities. The Council of Carthage was not a group of men sitting down for an hour saying, that book promotes women, get rid of it, that book is misogynistic, let's keep that one, lit up candles and went on their way. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. After almost 400 years of people dying for these books, the church councils finally came to a place, not even formally. Carthage, would, you, could, you could hardly call Carthage a formal council. They recognized and solidified for the church. These are the books that are recognized as God's inspired word, and they are now our canon. The Old Testament canon, how did it come to be? We, we really don't know that much about the Old Testament canon. What we do know is that from Moses and the Pentateuch and the writings of the Pentateuch to Malachi, the Jews began to compile various authors that they recognized as authoritative. They had standards for the prophets. If a prophet's prophecy didn't come true, they're out. There were these standards that the Jews had. And by the time we reach Malachi, there is a recognized canon of scriptures. And it closes at Malachi. The reason that, for those of you that have a Catholic background, 
The reason that the books of the Apocrypha, Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, those books were written after Malachi in the 400-year span of time of silence between Malachi and Matthew. They're not recognized. They were never recognized by the ancient Jews as inspired. They were never taken in as part of the canon of the ancient Jews because they're self-contradicting. There are things that are said in those books that don't line up with what's said in the Pentateuch. And so the Jews viewed those as historical documents. And if you've never read the Apocrypha, it's a fascinating set of books, especially Maccabees in the history. And Bell and the Dragon's got some super cool stuff in it too. But they're not God's word. They're not recognized as God's word. And what's most important for us, rather than getting into all the technical background on the Old Testament canon, let me just say this. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus recognized Genesis through Malachi as God's words. Jesus Christ himself did. Jesus quotes from the law and the prophets and the Psalms or the books of wisdom over and over and over. Which means that to deny these books is to say, you know what, I'm going to follow. And this is classic cultural language around us. I'm going to follow Jesus, but the Old Testament, mm -mm. you can't do that. Jesus followed the Old Testament. Jesus believed that the books from Genesis to Malachi were inspired. For the sake of time this morning, that's argument enough. Jesus recognized these books, and Jesus never mentioned the Apocrypha. He never mentions Maccabees. He never mentions the prophet Tobit. He never does any of these things. But all of the rest of the books that the ancient Hebrews recognized as Scripture, Jesus recognized as Scripture as well. Now let's get to the New Testament canon. You guys are going to love this. This is where the geeks are just going to completely nerd out because this is amazing stuff. Why did the New Testament canon form? The Old Testament canon was closed at Malachi. 400 years of no prophet. Jesus comes, lives, dies, resurrects, ascends, and now he leaves his disciples. And his disciples start writing. They're writing about this stuff. Luke is writing a faithful account of what happened to Jesus, telling the stories of the first century church. And these books start getting written. Then this crazy church planner named Paul, this machine of a church planner named Paul, rises up and he starts planting churches all over Asia Minor. And then these churches go crazy. Some of them are getting drunk at communion. Some of these guys in their churches are having sex with their stepmoms. Really crazy, gross stuff. Paul's writing letters. Don't do that. Stop doing that. You guys are getting crazy. You need to not do that, right? <clears throat> These letters are being circulated in the early church. Paul actually instructs the church at Colossae. He wrote a book called Colossians to correct early Gnostic heresies at the church of Colossae. He says, by the way, make sure this gets to Laodicea, this letter. Okay. So these letters are being written. Now here is how the New Testament canon began to be formed. Through that first century, these churches are all circulating these letters, different gospels. Most likely Mark was the earliest gospel. Matthew and Luke took their cues off of Mark. John is wholly unique. And for example, beginning in, we think about 140 AD, a man named Marcion rises up and he says, you know what? You guys are all reading the Old Testament and you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as gospels. I don't like John. I don't like Mark. I don't like Matthew. I only like Luke. The Old Testament, he, he would have fit in American culture perfect. I don't like the Old Testament. It's gone. Marcion rises up, and it's called the Marcion Canon. And he says the only books that are actually God's word are the Gospel of Luke 
And Paul's letters, oh yeah, except for the pastorals. We don't like First and Second Timothy and we don't like Titus. Anything on authority and leadership, we're getting rid of that. Marcion, Marcion says, here's the books. And the church goes, this is reason number one that the canon began to form. The church goes, oh my goodness. Wait, you can't just get rid of the Old Testament. Wait, 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 wait. We like Matthew, Mark. Those are speaking about Jesus and we know that there are these standards that are met. There were other church fathers that were trying to compile lists of books that the whole church would recognize. And some of those books were limited. And so the church had to start having conversations. It would be much like if a church down the street showed up here, some leader starts spreading around here. Hey, did you guys know that you you probably shouldn't be reading the book of Hebrews? And um, Pastor Danny is preaching from Mark right now, but that's not really inspired. You can guarantee I'd be having a conversation with him and all of you. Because we want to know. And the second reason, and this is the primary reason that canon began to be formed. These people were dying for these books. This is what we don't understand. This is what our brothers in China right now get. To have a Bible and a book that you say is inspired and have somebody say, if you don't deny that, I'm going to cut your head off. You don't want your head cut off. For some lunatic's ideas that claim to be God. You want your head cut off for God's words, right? So over the expanse of the church's life in the first three centuries, the church really had to begin to distill. I'm going to die for this. If I have have a letter from Paul, a copy of a letter of Paul to Colossae, and the Roman government comes in and says, I'm going to kill your family if you don't burn that thing. You would want to know. Do you see how that pressure cooker is what raised up the standard, the canon? So over a 300-year period, these letters began to rise up. And what developed was this very stringent criteria. There were already recognized letters. I don't want you guys to think that it was just this chaotic muck and mire of hundreds of letters. There were very specific letters and very specific gospels. And what the first century documents were are what we have in our Bible. That's a very important point. But the standards that just a few of them that they would use were, was it written by an apostle? Did it carry apostolic authority? Did it already agree with all the recognized books? Was it not in contradiction with scripture? Was it self-authenticating? Did the church already receive it? So what I want you to see in canon, and I'm closing this section with this, is that God spoke... And just as much as he superintended the speaking of his word through men, it's amazing when you look at the history of how when God put his word in this world in the New Testament, he superintended which books would be recognized and which ones would not be recognized. And the ones that weren't recognized really were written about 100 years after the canon was closed. Okay? Transmission. And we're going to wrap this up. This is our last point for the morning. Transmission. What is transmission? Transmission is the process where that original letter what Paul wrote, that's called an autograph, or theologians call it the autographa, because Latin makes them sound smarter. And so the, the autographa, the original letter, was written. Transmission is the process. Remember, there wasn't Gutenberg's printing press, so they had to handwrite these copies. They had to transmit the apostolic word and make copies of it to disseminate Over thousands of years, if I whispered in my wife's ear, and we started playing telephone in this church through the next five generations, 
Alexis, I love you. Pass that on. Five generations from now, playing telephone, how messed up do you think the transmission of that message would be? It could get pretty messed up, right? I want you to understand that those that oppose the Bible aren't dumb. It makes sense that if somebody wrote something here in, you know, 1500 BC or, you know, 35 AD, thousands of years of copies of that letter probably had some mistakes in it, which means that what they wrote back here, we don't really need to listen to that because they messed it up. This is a miracle. Transmission of the Bible is a miracle. Before I show you these technical things, can I just say this? And I'll, I'll give you the details on it if you want to talk to me about it one-on-one. All, everybody in this room, anybody listening online right now needs to understand this. Nobody challenges the Bible in the area of transmission. Now, lay-level people... Folks that you guys are going to be talking to at work, they're going to say dumb things. Like, you know, you can't really know that what those guys wrote is what they wrote because it's been messed up and mistranslated over hundreds of years. Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, PBS special. I saw it. No, that's dumb. The, the overwhelming evidence, historical and literary scholars, nobody in academia challenges the notion that the Bible has been mistransmitted. When you read the words on the page, there's no scholar, historical or literary, that's going to say, you know what, that's probably not what they really wrote, so we can avoid that. Nope, that is what they wrote. We need to think about that. That's what they were saying. That's what they say they saw. That's what they say they saw happen. That's what they say we should be conducting ourselves as. That's it. That's what they wrote. Nobody challenges that. And I'll give you now the technical reasons why. The veracity of the Old Testament. And the veracity of the New Testament. Let's talk about the Old Testament very quickly. The scribes that would copy this Old Testament document, they would write on scrolls, had this unbelievably meticulous process whereby they would copy what Moses had written. Let's take the book of Exodus and they would write it out meticulously. There was teams of accountability, multiple eyes. There was these ritual washings that they had to go through. They were called the Masoretes. This is what we call the Masorite text, Masoretic text. And they would have to go through this process of carefully, you know, writing and double checking and, and overseeing this process. And so One of the things that has solidified the validity of the veracity of the Old Testament transmission is this. Track with me here. I'm going to speak slowly. (laughs) Up until 1948, the oldest, the oldest document, the oldest copy that we had of, let's say, the book of Isaiah dated back to 980 AD. Okay. So Isaiah writes his prophecy in 600 BC. The next closest copy we have of that, and we have no original writings. Everybody needs to know that. We have no original writings of the Gospels. We have no original autographs of Paul's letters. None. They don't exist. All we have is copies. The oldest, let's say we're using Isaiah here, up until 1948, Isaiah writes his prophecy, and then the next copy that we have, that we can study, that we can say, okay, here's the copies of the copies of the copies, was 980 A.D. Okay? There was a whole swath of liberal scholars who said, you know what, Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the church took the scroll of Isaiah, 
And they fit it. They knobbed and tweaked and turned it and made Isaiah 53 look like Jesus. This isn't really what Isaiah wrote. Look, and then all those copies, that's what we have today. So when you read Isaiah, you're actually just reading mistaken copies, scribal copies, mistakes to 9880, right? Okay, is everybody tracking with that? 1948, little Bedouin shepherd boy throws a rock up in a cave. (laughs) Here's clay break. He goes up in there and he discovers what's come to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, are copies or fragments of all the Old Testament, an entire Isaiah scroll. I stood in front of it. It was one of the most moving experiences for me. This is how geeky I am. In Israel, one of the main things I wanted to see was the Isaiah scroll. And this is why. This is why. This is why God speaks. Powerful stuff. And I love him for it. The Isaiah scrolls, without question anymore, they date back to 150 BC, before Jesus. And here's why this is important. Now scholars had an opportunity to say, here's our oldest texts from Isaiah, 980 AD. Now we can go back a thousand years before the church and see if they changed it. See if there's any mistakes. Identical. Before the church. What Isaiah wrote, they wrote in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they copied specifically and without mistake through 980 AD. And they found this consistently through every book of the Bible in the Dead Sea Scrolls, except for the book of Esther. It is dumb. It is the height of cultural ignorance to say that what Isaiah said isn't what Isaiah said. What Isaiah said is there's a suffering servant coming. And in 150 BC, the Qumran community was writing about it meticulously, specifically, as they had for millennia. And a thousand years later, they were still writing the exact same thing. So that today, when we open up Isaiah 53, what it says is a suffering servant came to die for us. And it speaks specifically and specially of our salvation. And it is without question. You can read your Bible, your Old Testament going, whoa, what they said and what they experienced happened and was transmitted accurately. Now we get to the New Testament. And it's like God took a megaphone and said, hey, this is my word. And what I'm saying to you is going to stand. And here is the technical proofs of that. The canon of the New Testament and its transmission. There are two primary Tests that scholars use to to test out how do we know that this is accurately transmitted. The first is, number one, how close to the original copy can you get? So Paul writes his letter. What's the closest copy that we can get to that? In the telephone circle, what's the furthest back we can get? Because we know it's going to be more accurate than if there was more mistakes made, right? The second aspect is how many copies of that letter do we have? How many copies can we compare with one another? See where the variants are. See where the differences are. Okay? With the New Testament, there is such insurmountable, weighty evidence that nobody questions that what Paul wrote, we have on our laps today, what Mark wrote about Jesus, is what we are reading about today. There are 5,700 Greek manuscripts. I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk over here. Hopefully this thing won't ring. It's not going to work. I need a little laser pointer. Look down there at the bottom line. Over 25,000 copies. Let me start explaining these numbers, and then we're going to wrap it up. This evokes worship in me. It should in you, too. Because this is so... It's like an exclamation point from our Lord. 
Nobody, when you're in college, sits down with Aristotle or sits down with Homer and says, I'm not sure that this is what the philosopher wrote. How do you know? How do you know? Well, the reason that I know that Homer wrote the Iliad is because he wrote it in 900 BC. And the next copy that we have of that is 400 AD. Okay, 400 AD. The closest copy we have of the Iliad, an actual existent copy of the Iliad, telling us that what Homer wrote was this, exists 1,500 years after its writing. And how many copies do we have to compare? 643 of them. But there's no scholar at the UW this week that's going to say, you know, Homer may not have actually written this. And what he wrote may not have actually been this way. Plato, all of the, I mean, we're talking about the core of Western society here. Those who study historical documents, nobody questions that, that, you know, the writings of Plato in 400 BC, even though the first copy we have is 1300 years later. And by the way, we only have seven copies to compare to make sure that they all say the same thing. Nobody says about Plato that he shouldn't influence our thinking. He's the foundation of Western philosophy. Then we get to the New Testament where everybody's like, it's been mistranslated. And what they said, we can't be very sure what they said because, you know, I watched the PBS special and I love Dan Brown and I read the Da Vinci Code. Listen to this. Most of the New Testament, in fact, if you date Revelation late, and the latest latest dates that we have on the right of of Revelation can't go over 93 AD, 95 AD max. So you have this span of time where these letters are being written. We have copies in existence. You can go and look at the, you can look at the John Papyri fragment, which someday I'm going to make my pilgrimage to the institute that holds this fragment. It's one of the oldest fragments we have. It's a section of the gospel of John, John chapter eight, verses 31 and 35. And then the backside of it has other verses from the gospel of John. And scholars have dated this fragment back to 125 AD. That means that from within 50 years, So if we take our telephone game, let's take our telephone game. What we have for Plato, as far as copies and distance, is you have Plato speaking, and then you have a whole line of people playing telephone, like let's say a hundred, to get his message. With the Gospel of John, we have them right next to each other. Alexis, I love you. And then the next person says, Alexis, I love you. That's That's the span of the difference. 25 years. In fact, there's, there's actually just been a new discovery of uh, a fragment from the Gospel of Mark that may date to an actual existent copy within 50 years of Mark's writing. That's basically two guys sitting in the same room saying, write this, write this. Okay. And then the copies that we get to compare with each other. So you take out Plato, the foundation of Western thought, and let's make sure that the copies all kind of line up. We've got seven of them to compare. 1,300 years after Plato wrote, long telephone line, right? 25,000 copies that date back to the first and second centuries. It's unheard of. There is no book in history like the Bible that is so clearly translated exactly the way that it was to be translated. To top it off, we have the early church fathers, second, third, fourth century, and scholars surmise and have discerned about one million different quotes from the New Testament, so much so that there are certain scholars that actually postulate that if we lost, let's say there was a fire in every archaeological institute that we have and all of these fragments burned and we had no longer existent these ancient copies, you could take out the church fathers from the third and fourth century, start reading their quotes, and compile the entire New Testament 
from the quotes. From the third century, we're talking not hundreds of years, 200 years. All of that should sufficiently say to you that the Bible is God's word to you. Now, one final thing, and then we'll go to Q&A. If any of you have been on a college campus or watched one too many PBS specials without discernment, you're going to hear the number, you know, there's 300,000 variants in the New Testament documents. And some people will use the word mistakes. They're right. They're right. There are 300,000. When you compare these 25,000 documents, you're going to find variants or differences. And here's what they are. In one document, an I is dotted. And in the other document, the I is not dotted. That's counted as variant. In certain instances, there's documents, and I'll use English here just to make it understandable. Let's say that I wrote a poem to my wife. Um, I was riding a horse through the field. Okay? And then the copies got made of that. And somebody accidentally forgot the R. So then the copies after that was, I was riding a hose through the field. Those are part of the variants. You'll be reading through the New Testament, particularly in places like the book of Thessalonians, where a Greek word that's very similar got messed up and then just got copied. All of the variants, all 300,000 of the variants involve crossing of T's or missing dotted I's or switching of words. There is nothing in any of those 300,000 variants that changes any at all, nothing of significant meaning in all of the New Testament. The biggest ones are John chapter 8 and Mark chapter 16. And you just need to join this church and come back with us because I'm going to do an entire series on this in Mark chapter 16 talking about that section of older documentation that was not inspired. The final, final thing before we pray and go to Q&A for about five minutes is this. And you guys have been great today. You guys have just been fantastic. So thank you. The Bible is about Jesus. Here's what I close with. Genesis to Revelation. Here's what the Bible is about. God saying, I love you. Over and over and over. Genesis through Malachi is God saying, look, I'm preparing the whole world for my son. I'm going to establish sacrificial systems that point to my son. I'm going to establish kings that point to the coming king. I'm going to use prophets that will point to the coming prophet. All of the Old Testament is a gigantic picture of the coming Jesus. The Gospels and the book of Acts are the historical record inspired describing the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, saying, I love you, living for us as our substitute, dying our death and resurrecting. The New Testament epistles written by Paul and James, Jude and Peter, John, are the instruction to the church living under Jesus Christ, heralding him as our righteousness and our goodness and the life that is lived out of that acceptance and out of that grace. The whole Bible is about Jesus. We interpret the Bible through Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus, in Jesus. It's translated correctly. It's his word. It's how he speaks to us. Let me pray. Father, please, as members of this church, we want to understand how to defend the Bible and believe the Bible and read the Bible. We don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God of the Bible. So fill us with your spirit now. Guide us in our Q&A, and may you be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Went way long today. It's all right. I want to give you about five minutes here. Please keep your comments as questions uh, so that we can expediently get out of here. But if you have any questions... 
I have a lot of questions that I could answer for you. I've got them written down here on the bottom of my notes, but I'll let you raise your hand um, and see if anybody has questions. Yeah, brother. Great question. Brother asks, what, I use the term called self-authenticating. Okay. So in the technical world of the standards that were established for Canon, there were objective standards. Those objective standards were, was it written by a recognized apostle? Paul, uh, Peter, Mark, who was writing on behalf of Peter. Those are objective standards outside of self. With those objective standards in place, the church also used subjective. Now, don't think Mormon burning in the heart. Wow, I just read the Gospel of Mark and got flutterbys. I think this is God's word. Think this is transformative. This has taken me from this place mentally and in my desire and in my understanding and in my faith to this place. So there was a self-authenticating reality or power to particular books. Especially once you begin to begin to compare the early Gnostic heresies that rise up in about the second, well, the earliest seed form, late, late second, early third centuries. When you begin to compare those, you see the, the dynamic shift between the self-authentication of this is Jesus Christ's life for me and the implications of that lived out versus some Gnostic heresy of I must do this to find the greater light. So self-authenticating in my opinion, is probably the weakest argument that Christians should use when defending the standard of canon because it's subjective. But that does not deny the fact that, you know, our earliest brothers and sisters were reading these books and dying for them because of the self-authenticating transformative power of them. We need to always keep that in mind, that these men and women were going to die for these books. And the next time you have a Mormon brother... uh, You'll get arrested for this, but it'd be a good test. The next time, here's a good test. The next time you have a Mormon guy standing on your door and, and he says, just, hey, my bosom burned when I read the Book of Mormon. Put a gun in his head and say, really? Will you die for that? And let's see how self-authenticating the Book of Mormon is. I mean, I'm making a crass point here, but that's what the early Christians were doing. Does everybody understand the importance of that? The reality of that historically, that, that somebody's... Those books and the books that we read were so transformative that they would die for them. So um, somebody's going to jail after this Sunday morning for sure. <laughs> Becky. I have, um, okay. Uh-huh. Those are great questions. Um, she asked for the author, and I'm repeating all this for the recording. Uh, Werner Keller is his name. The Bible is history. <laughs> um, and the handbook that's coming out, guys, will be footnoted with all the resources that, that we've compiled, and there'll be multiple resources that you can use at that point. Um, Becky asks a really good question. Why did the process of canon take hundreds of years? And then you, the other part of that was how did it affect or could have it?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hebrews and James and Jude all received major challenges, and that answers part of your question. Why did it take so long for the New Testament canon to be established? A couple of reasons. Number one, it's not like before Jesus ascended, he said, now, I want you to compile these books and put them together. There was no instruction on that. There was no need for that. That wasn't something that they were needing to fight for. The earliest Christians were just trying to survive, and they were trying to listen to and obey the Lord. So as time went on, like I mentioned, the, the various removals of particular books by church fathers or by heretics like Marcion, that was a, a slow process. Remember, the Internet has really messed with the way that we get data and transfer information. We're living in a culture without the printing press. We're living in a verbal, oral culture. Most people can't read and write. So everything is transmitted orally. The, the scholarly elite are very rare and very small in number. And so this process would have been an ongoing kind of superintended by the Holy Spirit process that would take time for all the churches in Asia Minor and throughout the world. The councils that actually solidified in the 3rd and 4th centuries, the recognized canon, took place in North Africa, way away from Jerusalem and Golgotha and the cross. And so the process is both, I think, a historical reality of the way that data was transferred. Um, and there was never really a time until the real early heresies began to crop up the Gnostics that Paul was fighting against, where there had to be this recognized set of books. So that time was kind of the the boiling or the seeping of these books are rising up, these books are received. And then there was lengthy, lengthy debates. These councils, like I said, they weren't like, let's light up some candles and an hour later we flipped coins and picked books. They went on for months and years on books like the book of Hebrews, books that didn't have recognized apostolic authority. You ask, would that have affected, uh, I guess, the nature of transmission or the nature of canon? And my answer to that is no, because for me, it actually solidifies the beauty of God's superintendence. If this was done by men, it would make sense that they sat down, had a council for like a couple weeks, lit up some candles, flipped coins, did what men do. But when you look at the canonization of Scripture, you're kind of forced to go, wow, there was some force behind that, that these books would rise up, be stood on, die for. These councils would finally recognize these books as is. So I think, in fact, it actually solidifies the fact that this is God's word to us and dependable. Uh, one, more, one more quick question, and then we're going to have to wrap it up. I think we had one back here. Maybe Was there one back here? Alan and then Darren. Two more. Great question. Yeah. Yes. Great question. What translations? Um, once we get our own building, we're going to do this again. I'm going to give you guys four-hour sessions of just like fire hose for four hours. I didn't get to translations. Um, but suffice it to say, English, your English translations are accurate representations of the word-for-word Hebrew and Greek. Okay. There are three different types of translations that our world has produced. Word for word, and everybody needs to understand that if you wrote Greek word for word, 
in English, it would sound crazy. In fact, here's a funny story real quickly. In my house, my kids have a nickname. When I was studying Greek with my wife a number of years ago, my teacher wrote up on the board uh, uh, a Greek verse in English. And it read something like, and there will be butt weeds that will rise, you know. And so the butt was before the weeds. And all of a sudden I was like, butt weeds, that's hilarious. And my kids, <laughs> my kids still get called butt weeds to this day. <laughs> so word for word into English is good and doable. But the words are, Greek is highly inflected. Hebrew is a frigging nightmare. It's a poetic language. And so your English translations are accurate word for word. There's also what's called dynamic equivalence or it's thought for thought. So there's a degree. You go um, authorized version, New King James, King James. And also, in this day and age, Bibles are translated from different manuscripts. I showed you guys that list of manuscripts. Some are translated from earlier manuscripts. Some are translated from uh, what's called the received text, which is a larger... Gosh, this is really technical stuff to get across. But suffice it to say, they're translated from different manuscripts. So dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. This is like the New Living Translation or New Century Bible. And then you have the paraphrase, which is... uh, on the spectrum, the, probably the most extreme and most popular level is Eugene Peterson's The Message. You ask which translation is the best. At Taproot Church, uh, we preach and teach from the ESV. I would encourage you to be learning your Bibles from a word-for-word translation. Uh, the ESV um, is probably the newest uh, well done word for word translation, but I would also encourage you to read broadly. Um, I've actually had multiple conversations with people that say, you know, the message is, is Eugene Peterson and it's just the devil. Well, it's not. As long as you read it as this is Eugene Peterson's thoughts on the Bible. Okay. The New Living Translation or the NIV, uh, these are all effective paraphrases and you get a broader scope of the original language. So my preference, we preach from, we teach from, I'd like you guys to be doing your devotional readings from an ESV or a word for word, but also supplement that with, I use the New Living Translation all the time. In fact, my scripture quotes in here today are from the New Living Translation because I know some of you are brand new to the Bible. It's very easy flowing. It's about fourth grade elementary level uh, writing. Um, There was one other thing I was going to say and I can't remember. So we'll pass. One other question, Darren. As a church? Wow. Darren asks a good question. How are we doing as a church uh, with Bibles on our laps and actually reading our Bible? If, if a mark of healthy discipleship is you're in the word, how are we doing? What's my pastoral perspective? I think that you guys are just way too busy. And I think your priorities need to be repented of. You know, I think that we, and I'm guilty too. But my job is, I, you guys actually support my wife and I so that I can study the Bible 40 hours a week. And, and it's, it's a unique position that I hold in the body of Christ. But when I look at American Christianity in general, what I see is that we have our priorities turned around towards this world more than towards the world that's coming. 
And so when that happens, it influences everything that we do. And so Bible reading and Sunday gatherings and missional community and prayer obviously gets pushed out because we're going to bed at midnight and getting up at, you know, 6 a.m. to hit the run. Um, and so it's not a priority. That's just, that's not, that's not a condemnation. I'm giving like a general, broad, oversweeping American Christian perspective here. And, you know, my wife and I have talked about this over the years. Even this church is full of mamas, little baby mamas and baby bellies everywhere. That's virtually an impossible season to be in your Bible. But it's not. It's not impossible to set aside five minutes while you're nursing little Johnny or Sally to grab half a, half a chapter of Proverbs. The intention isn't, I've got to do this so I'll be a good Christian. It's those moments of being with him. And the paradigm shift for us as disciples is when we begin to discern, whoa, my time in the word transforms everything about my day. You can ask my wife, when I'm up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and I spend an hour with Jesus, not prepping for a sermon, not thinking about theology, just praying and reading my Bible, you know, I am much better than I normally am without my Bible. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Perspective, patience, gentleness, kindness, wisdom, joy, desires, goals. And I think particularly, I'm going to hammer in right here on you brothers. You brothers are the pastors of your home and you are the, the guards of your wives. And many of us as men are tired, worn out, we're working hard, but we're also not prioritizing in that. The harder you work and work at something, you're, you're seeing your priorities. So take time and say, Lord, why, why is the word not a priority for me? And it's establishing disciplines. This is going to be an entire session where disciples have disciplines that are duty that leads to delight. The duty of fasting is horrible. I hate it, but it leads to delight. The duty of 15 minutes of father, I pray to receive from you and your word. I'm going to read the duty of doing a little interpretation, plowing your way through Leviticus. And I would also give you this. Rather than feeling that need to, boy, I've got to just be plowing through Leviticus and, and just stomaching all this Old Testament stuff that I don't get and doesn't have any application in my life, start reading where the Lord speaks. Read through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 was one of the first verses that leapt off the page. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works that you are foreordained to. Hey, that speaks to me. And then meditate on that. Bible reading isn't just about ingesting, it's about meditating. And this is an entire another session, so I've got to, got to wrap it up. To close my answer to that question, we can always be prioritizing prayer and the word more. But you're not a better Christian if you do. You're loved. And when you read your Bible, you know that more. Okay? That's the issue. You are loved whether you ever read the Bible again or not. You're accepted whether you ever read it or not. You are perfect right now. But the Bible tells you that over and over and over. That's why you want to read it. It refreshes and renews your mind. I've got to pray for us, guys. Start praying for a new building so that we can keep going for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Will, come on up. We're going to close this in a song. Lord Jesus, uh, as we celebrate you this morning, closing this time out in song, we give you all glory. We ask, God, that you would lead many to membership, covenant membership in this house as a new family member or a renewed family member. 
get us into our Bibles, God. We pray that we would read your word and exalt you in your word as an act of worship. And Lord, let that word speak delight and joy. You love these men. You love these women so much. You love us so much. And so fill us with that joy as you wash our hearts and minds in the word. In Jesus' name, amen.